Well, good morning. You sure about that? Good morning? Yeah, that was a wet one, I know. I'm uh, pretty proud of you for getting in here because I know how many of you thought, oh, let's just stay home. I know you did. So let me start off by saying uh, good morning and welcome to everybody who's now listening online and it's Tuesday. All right, because I know there's a number who went, oh, I'll just wait and listen online on Tuesday. That'd be a lot drier. So glad you're listening. Glad you're here this morning. When we come to a worship service like this, we call it that a worship service because of our time, not only in the word, but uh, our singing. And we often equate singing with worship. But I want you to understand that that song that Matt just taught us that he wrote was based, as he said, on Romans 12, 1 and 2. And there it says, not our spiritual songs of worship, but our spiritual service of worship. That one of the primary ways that we worship God is actually in how we serve, not just in how we sing. And so I want to encourage you to really consider, like Eric shared and Joni did, that that our children are a tremendous gift, the future of the body of Christ here on this planet. And so your opportunity to invest an hour a week into shaping those lives with the truth of the Scripture may be one of the most influential things you get to do. So I encourage you not to just dismiss it, but to genuinely ask the Lord, Lord, is that a place where you would have me invest in the future of the body of Christ? If you have a a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3. As we open the scriptures, I know they say nothing makes for better napping than a steady rain like that. But that's an afternoon nap and it's not afternoon. So open your scriptures if you have one. And let's look at actually what is a, a pretty challenging text of scripture in Mark chapter 3. It's challenging because Jesus is going to say something to us that seems like is contradictory. It seems like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Let me show you what I mean. He is going to encounter blasphemy. So pretty heavy topic for a rainy morning. Jesus encounters blasphemy and what he says is the consequence of for a blasphemy. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And he, Jesus, came home. He had been on the mountain. He had chosen the 12, and now he's back home. And the crowd is gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So busy helping people, so busy doing ministry, they can't even, Jesus and his disciples, get a chance to eat. This response to the crowds is twofold. First of all, his family has an opinion. Next verse says, when his own people, that specifically means his kinsmen, his family, when his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they saying what? He's crazy. In other words, later in the text, it talks about his brothers and his mother. I just don't think Brothers and mom are prepared for the life that Jesus is living and their reaction to him. It would always, if you put yourself in that situation, it'd be hard to go, whoa, what is up with my brother? Who does he think he is? What is he doing? It's a little over the top. 
with all that's happening through the life of Jesus. So they really, they're coming to take Jesus' custody to go, we got to save him from himself. He's crazy. Well, next week, John will specifically look at, look at that family reaction. What we want to look at is the religious leader's reaction to what's going on. Next verse says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, that's Satan, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So if you had to pick being accused of being crazy or being accused of being demon-possessed, would you pick one or the other? You'd pick crazy? Yeah, I think I'd pick crazy over demon possession. That's a pretty strong statement. Jesus is demon possessed. That's the accusation. So that's our question. Was Jesus demon possessed? Now, for many of us, it's pretty easy to go, well, of course not. But let me acknowledge something. And this is probably going to be true for you as well. I have not been, at least to my awareness, around a lot of demon possession, and therefore have not been around someone who is regularly casting out demons. So I've never really had to personally wrestle with this question. So in fairness, when we read the Gospels, have you ever said to yourself, wow, there's a tremendous amount of demon possession going on. I don't see that in Mandarin, at least not that I recognize. And I don't see anybody in Mandarin Runner casting out demons. And so they were facing something that you and I probably haven't wrestled with. Whether they believed it or not, whether they were simply trying to discredit Jesus, or if they genuinely thought the only explanation for what he's doing is that he is demon-possessed, he's one of them, that may be it. What... I find compelling about Jesus in the text is he doesn't just dismiss their accusation. He doesn't go, oh, come on. Because most of us, we go, come on, really? Jesus is demon-possessed? We wouldn't give it the the first or second thought. But Jesus answers the question, and he does it actually very logically. Watch his reasoning. He says, verse 23, And he called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. Now, before we look, let's define parable. Parable is very effective because it takes a true-to-life, maybe didn't actually happen, but a a real true-to-life story that people would understand and uses it to teach a spiritual truth. It's a great teaching technique because often if you don't understand something, the best way to help someone understand something is to take something they do understand and illustrate it to then go, okay, now here's a spiritual truth. That's all what Jesus is doing. He's taking a spiritual reality that they don't get and he's going to give them an example of something they do get. Here's the parable. Well, here's first the spiritual truth. How can Satan cast out Satan? Wouldn't make any sense. Here's his parable. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. That's a true-to-life situation. As Americans, we know this. What's this called when a kingdom is divided against itself? What, what was that for us? That was civil war. We were ripping our nation, and the nation was not going to stand in civil war. That's all Jesus is saying. If Satan is against himself, then he can't stand. He's hurting himself. 
take it from a kingdom to a smaller scenario, but same, parable, same truth, different parable. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And some of you grew up in that situation right there, a, a house that was divided and it didn't stand. See, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. He's ruining himself. Jesus' logic is really sound. He simply acknowledges, if I am demon-possessed, I would be foolishly waging a spiritual civil war. I'd be weakening my own team. That would be foolish. It would be counterproductive. And so he says, why would, if I was demon-possessed, why would I be casting out demons? That'd be spiritual civil war. And then he goes on and makes the point even stronger. Another parable. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Why can't you do that? Because the strong man will stop you. If you're going to rob the guy's house, you got to contain him and then you can do what you want. If you don't do that, he's going to oppose you. So that's the parable. What's the spiritual reality? That his authority over demons is a demonstration of his authority over the strong man. Who's the spiritual strong man his authority over? Satan. So he's going, uh, my casting out demons is not only not civil war. That would be foolish. It's actually evidence that I am not on that team, that I am against them. And not only am I against them, I have authority over them. I would not be able to cast out the demons, plunder the strong man's house, unless I first bound the strong man, Satan. You follow the logic? It's it's good reasoning. And I appreciate that Jesus doesn't go, oh, come on, don't be crazy. No, He speaks to the issue and demonstrates logically how that could not be true. But he then takes the opportunity to introduce something to them and to us that will make you go, awesome, whoa, uh, how? Seriously, it's going to make you go, awesome, whoa, and then how? Here's the awesome. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, they'll be forgiven. What's that make you say? (laughs) Yeah, awesome. My sins are forgiven. Awesome. Really? Yeah, that's awesome. Or maybe you've forgotten that the penalty of sin is eternal separation from God. That, That our sins would be forgiven. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Awesome. Here comes the uh uh-oh. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Uh Uh-oh. But is guilty of what type of sin? Eternal sin. So you get awesome. Uh Uh-oh. How? How what? How can both of those be true? See, the, the, the question is, 
He says this to him because they're saying he has an unclean spirit. The question is, is there an unforgivable sin? Is there? What's the obvious answer? <laughs> well, it depends which verse you read. 28 or 29? Verse 28 says, what's the awesome? All sins forgiven. Whatever blasphemy. What's the O? <laughs> blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You'll never be forgiven. How, how's that work? How can both be true? Or so how many of you think all sin is forgivable? Okay. So the rest of you think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's unforgivable. He puts you in a bit of a bind, doesn't he? Verse 28 says this. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. So is there an unforgivable sin? Well, verse 28 says all sin is forgivable, including blasphemy. But then what's the first word, verse 29? First word? Yeah. All sins forgiven, including blasphemy, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So all sin is forgivable, including blasphemy, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. So awesome. Uh-oh. Let's pray and let's go home. I mean, can you, un here's the difference. How do you unravel that tension? Because do they not seem contradictory? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Let's say, you're allowed to say, Jesus, that doesn't seem to make sense. Is it this or is it this? Because if the issue is forgiveness, is everybody forgivable or is everybody but those who do this forgivable? What's it mean? So since forgiveness is the question at stake, go in your Bible, we're in Mark 3, go back to when forgiveness is first introduced in Mark chapter 1. In the Gospel of Mark, it is first introduced in verse 4 where it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. So we dealt with this Easter Sunday when we started the Gospel of Mark. Remember, he was not preaching a baptism for forgiveness. He was preaching a repentance for forgiveness demonstrated by a baptism. See, we forget that in the first century, teachers Many teachers would baptize their followers because baptism simply means to dip, to identify with. And so if a teacher was, pre was preaching a particular message and you wanted to identify yourself with them, you would be baptized with, by them. You were agreeing with them. Uh, today, you just would wear a hat with their name on it or something like that. So you would be baptized. So John the Baptist is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And those who are following his preaching are being baptized. This is significant because 
he was primarily preaching to Jewish people who believed that their right standing with God was because of their heritage, because they were Jewish. And he is proclaiming a message that whether you're Jewish or Gentile, there needs to be repentance, a changing of your mind. That's what repentance means. A changing of your mind in order for forgiveness of sins to take place. And they needed to change their mind regarding, I'm Jewish, therefore I'm good with God. Verse 14 then of Mark 1 gives us an update. It says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. What is that? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is again. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news of forgiveness is rooted in repentance. You cannot watch, you cannot believe in the gospel apart from a change of mind, a repenting. To believe in Jesus first requires a, I'm not believing in myself, I'm not believing in something else, I'm not believing in my heritage, I'm not believing in my good works. I must repent, change my mind, and believe in Jesus. So from the beginning, the Gospel of Mark has taught us that repentance is required for forgiveness. That's the first key of understanding the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is required for forgiveness. Here's the second key. What is required for somebody to repent? Turn to John, and we'll look at one more teaching of Jesus to his disciples, John chapter 16. This is Jesus in the upper room. He has washed the disciples' feet. He has shared the Passover meal with them, what we just remembered in taking the Lord's Supper. He has just done that with them, and he has told them, I'm going to go away. And it says the disciples' hearts are troubled. They don't want him to go away. And so Jesus teaches them in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage. It's going to be better for you if I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Now, if you read all of what Jesus said in that upper room, we understand that the helper is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, I need to go so that he will come. What he ultimately realized, he meant, was that he needed to go, offer his life as a substitutionary death, be buried, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then we read in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit was sent. So this is what Jesus is saying. I can't send the Spirit until I go through death, burial, resurrection, ascension. When I get to heaven, then the Father will send the Spirit. And that will be to your advantage. Here's why. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
See, the role of the Holy Spirit that was to come was the role of conviction of the world. The convic- if you experience conviction, maybe you don't know. Conviction is that work that God does in an individual's breaking of their heart regarding sin. That the wages of sin is death. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's the conviction that I am deserving of God's wrath because I am a sinner. And of righteousness. That my very best works are like filthy rags to God. That I would never be good enough. My righteousness will never be complete in and of myself. And therefore, he will convict of judgment. That there will be judgment because of sin and the lack of righteousness. That is, watch, that is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says, I must go so that he will come and bring conviction. Conviction that will lead to repentance that will lead to forgiveness. So... Repentance is required for forgiveness, and it's the role of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction that leads to repentance. So when he says, verse 29, whoever blasphemes whom? The Holy Spirit. Remember, it's not blasphemes the Father, not blasphemes the Son. It's blasphemes the Holy Spirit, the one who brings conviction. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. That's what verse 29 says. Because it is the resisting of the Spirit to the point that he no longer brings conviction that will lead to repentance. All sin is forgiven, whatever blasphemies, because of repentance. And repentance is a result of conviction. Let me show you. The scripture declares that God has offered to us by the sending of his son and the death of Jesus on the cross, he has offered us a gift, and that gift is salvation. It's the gift of forgiveness. And John the Baptist taught, and Jesus confirmed and taught that repentance is necessary for forgiveness. And Jesus indicated it was to their advantage that he would go so that the Spirit would come because it would be the Spirit who would bring conviction that would lead to repentance that would bring forgiveness. So... It's the word blasphemy. So what's it mean to blasphemy? Maybe you want to write this down. Blasphemy is to simply show contempt for God. To show contempt for God. Specifically, the blasphemy then of the Holy Spirit is to show contempt to the Holy Spirit's conviction. How would you show contempt For the Holy Spirit's conviction. Be being unresponsive to it. Specifically a failure to 
repent. The conviction is to lead to repentance. Repentance brings forgiveness. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to show contempt for the conviction that he brings. Give you an example, parable here. If you, not me, but if you're driving down the highway and a policeman pulls up beside you and you look over and you're like, oh man, I didn't see him coming and he gives you this. What's he telling you to do? Ah, pull over. Oh no, I can't afford this. So you go, I'm just going to keep driving. You are? Blast, yeah, you're dumb, right? That's one. You're dumb. You can't afford this for sure now. You are blaspheming the policeman in the sense that you are showing contempt for his instruction, pull over. So he does this and you go, mm, you go faster. What's he do? Yeah, he might then turn on the lights. And you see the lights and he's doing this and you're like, no. Not me, this is you. So <laughs> you drive faster. And so what's he do next? What's he do next? He probably turns on the siren. So now lights are whirling, sirens going, he's doing this. What would be blasphemy of the policeman? Keep going. I'm showing contempt for his authority. Now, what would he do next? I don't know. Billy, you've been there. What's he do next? <laughs> no, I'm just playing. <laughs> what? what would he, I don't know what he'd do. He may radio help. He may bring in another car. At some point, maybe they get really aggressive and run you off the road or blow out your tires. But once they get you off the road, it's not going to be pretty, is it? No. So you may think, oh, that's what the Holy Spirit does. I don't think so. I think what the Holy Spirit does is this. When we contempt, we keep going. He turns on lights. And we contempt, keep going. So he puts on a siren. We show contempt and we keep going. At some point, turns off the siren, turns off the lights, and he keeps going. Think, sweet. That's what I hoped. That's what I wanted. Hmm. That's what you wanted with the policeman. That's not what you want with the Holy Spirit, right? Because when he turns off the lights, turns off the siren, and he keeps going, then his work of doing what? Conviction stops. And if his work of conviction stops, then what can no longer happen? Repentance. And if repentance can no longer happen, then unforgivable. Not because God cannot forgive all sins, but because forgiveness is the gift in response to repentance and repentance is the response to conviction. And there is a point where the Holy Spirit turns off the lights and the siren and goes on. So, now you go, oh, now I got a big question. To whom does this apply? Because that is an uh-oh. Who, who would this apply to? First, 
The scripture says a child of God can quench the spirit. And you might write another word above that, grieve the spirit. A child of God can quench the spirit. A child of God can grieve the spirit. But I am 100% certain a child of God cannot blaspheme the spirit. And let me tell you why. He cannot blaspheme the spirit because the child is already fully, and I should have put that there, fully forgiven. The child of God is already fully forgiven. He could grieve the spirit. He may quench the spirit. Actually, to the point that was happening in Corinth that the child of God was asleep, the scripture says, that they died because of the discipline of the Lord. But they did not die in condemnation from the Lord. They died in the discipline of the Lord, their sin fully forgiven. So a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can only be applied to the person who has never, ever repented and believed because those who have repented and believed are been fully forgiven. This is what Colossians 2 says. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you were under the condemnation of God, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, it was hostile to us, and here's how he's done it. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the truth, the awesome is that when I repent of my sin and believe in Jesus, I am made alive with him. And when I am made alive with him in Christ, he has taken all of my punishment and nailed it to the cross so that as a child of God, I could grieve the spirit and be disciplined. I could quench the spirit and be disciplined, but I could not blaspheme the spirit because blasphemy is, what did Jesus teach in verse 29? Unforgivable. And that is impossible for a person who's been fully forgiven. Second thought on, to whom does this apply? If you're concerned you have, that is, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, actually, you probably have not. And I mean blaspheme the Spirit to the point that he has turned off the siren and the light. You probably have not. Now, don't miss. I wrote probably there. This is not my call. But I would say you probably have not because concern over our sin is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so where there's concern, there still remains hope. Hope for what? Repentance, remember? The conviction is to lead to repentance, and repentance then leads to forgiveness. So if you're concerned you have, then there's good reason to hope that you have not. But, but... It's only good, the concern is only good if it leads to repentance. If your concern does not lead to repentance, then you remain in danger. 
And I, I hope you understand what I mean there. If your concern, which I believe is potentially the continued work of the Holy Spirit, that that would lead you to repentance. If you are concerned, but then you walk out the doors today, climb in your car and go home, and it doesn't lead you to repentance, you remain in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and becoming unforgivable. So, here's whether it's our human nature of our foolishness, but we inevitably want to go, well, well, how long then can I live in danger but still be forgivable? You've never met someone who goes, I know I should repent, but I'm going to wait. I want to live my life a little. So how long do you get before you move from lights and siren to stop going on? Well, the answer is, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. For two reasons. Number one, you may think, well, I'll wait, but you don't know that you'll live tomorrow. It's not being overdramatic. It's just a reality. Nobody knows they get tomorrow. People die every day, if you haven't noticed. And you, you genuinely, whatever age you are, you could be one of them. So you can say, well, I'll wait till later in life and repent And you don't get later in the life you only had today. And so you had the opportunity. The Spirit of God was knocking on your heart this morning. You knew you needed to repent and believe in the gospel. But you said, no, no, no. And you're just going to keep going. And you miss your opportunity. The second reason that I can't tell you how long is not only because you don't know how long, I don't know, and you don't know how long you'll live, The Holy Spirit may turn off the lights, if you will, turn off the siren while you're still alive. Now, let me be very forthright with you. What I'm about to say, not everybody would agree with me in this interpretation of the scriptures. There was a time where I would not have agreed with myself in what I'm about to share. I always thought, well, as long as I have life, then I have opportunity to repent. The grieving, excuse me, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to resist the convicting work of the Holy Spirit the whole time I'm alive, and when I die, I can no longer repent, and therefore I'm unforgivable. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happens when my entire life I failed to repent. I actually think you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit and become at a place where he stops convicting, you can no longer repent, and you still have years left to live, and here's why. This is the parallel passage, same Jesus encounter, but Matthew's record, not Mark's. In Matthew's record, he writes, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man... See, it's not blasphemy of Jesus. It shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. See, I always agreed with and understood in the age to come. You die and you won't be forgiven. 
in the age to come. But he says, in this age or in the age to come. So actually, I think Jesus is telling them, remember, you must be demon-possessed. This is where this all started from. You must be demon-possessed. They are resisting what is clearly the work of God. And they're going, no, we're going to stick to our religious practices. We're going to stick to life as we have always lived it. We are not going to repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you continue to resist his convicting work, there will be a time in this life where he says, I'm moving on. I don't know when that is. I don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when the Holy Spirit would say, I'm done and moving on. But I think it can happen before you die. I think it could happen today. I think it could happen at some point prior to your death. Again, some will disagree with me. And I'm not... I'm not ashamed to go, I could be wrong on that. But in this age, warns me that it may be in this life. So, if you are continuing to resist, you are in danger, maybe before you die. Good news for you. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's good news. The good news is God is patient, not slow, because his desire is that you would repent. But sometimes we pervert this and we think, oh, God's patient, therefore God will never do what he says. Don't think the fact that God is patient does not mean his patience has no end. You follow that? We can think, oh, he's patient, he's patient, he's patient. That does not equal his patience has no end because what he says in 2 Peter 3 there that I just read to you was in the context of what he said just two verses earlier in verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So he spoke the world into existence and at one day he will burn it all up. So he spoke, and ever since then, he's been saying, listen, hold, 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 patient, so that you would repent. But there will be a day he's going to say, fire, fire. He's not being slow. His patience isn't without end. He is patient toward you that you come to repentance. So, in the confidence 
of God's patience to you and that you are here today listening, I would plead with you, with Jesus. This is straight out of Jesus' mouth. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent today and believe in the gospel. Admit that you are deserving of wrath, that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of holiness before God. And believe that God has loved you and sent his son to take the penalty for you. That Jesus has been your substitute and God has raised him from the dead and made him Lord of all so that you can receive the gift of repentance, of forgiveness. Repent, admit, believe, and receive. I genuinely would beg of you, don't resist any longer. I always, and maybe this will connect to you, I always grew up thinking, hmm, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you need to be careful about the words you've said. I always thought of it about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being words spoken in an angry moment or in a horrible moment or a contemptuous moment before God. But actually, I think a correct, accurate understanding of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not in words spoken, but in words not spoken. And the words not spoken Spoken, that I mean are, I admit, I believe, I receive. So this morning, I want to invite you to repent and believe in Jesus. If you have questions or concerns or not sure. We normally offer prayer after the service because of all the rain. We're going to offer the prayer, but up front in here, over in north, be pastors available to answer any questions, to share with you, to pray with you, to help you in any way if you are not certain that your sin, your sin has been forgiven through Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace to us, and thank you for your patience. Thank you for sending your spirit. I pray that where conviction is happening this morning, in this room over in north, I pray that it would not be resisted, but there would be repentance that would lead to forgiveness and life. Thank you for drawing my own heart to you, Lord. Complete work of your grace to me. Thank you. And I pray that there would be those this morning who would say yes to you and believe. In Christ's name, amen. Do feel free to come up if you have questions. If you're a first-time visitor, we'd love to greet you out, as Matt said, in the portico. God bless.